Hi, welcome to the course on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. This is Gayatri. Today we'll be studying Sutra number two. But first, a small prayer. Yogena chitta sya pade na vacha malam sharira sya chavedya kena yopakarutam pravaram muninam. We'll begin uh, with Maharishi Vedvyasa in his commentary as interpreted by Professor Ganganath Jha. The second sutra is translated as Yoga is the inhibition of the functions of the mind. So, before we sort of dive into it, I just wanted to say as much as the Yoga Sutras themselves are supposed to be the simplified version of instruction on yoga, Patanjali basically condensed the information on yoga that existed before he did this. And um, even so, the commentaries on it can make them feel quite dense and complicated, mainly because a lot of the writers and commentators use uh, an older tradition of words which are bombastic and which are extremely loaded in meaning. For instance, you cannot say chitta without parsing it into 10 different sections. Uh, and there's an assumption that there is a, a basic amount of knowledge in the reader or listener. <clears throat> However, it is by navigating these that we can make sense of the teaching. And one of the reasons for this is because this is the nature of tantra that uh, we must seek sufficiently for the knowledge to reveal itself. So grappling with the text is part of the process. So don't let larger words or hidden meanings sort of put you off. Okay. So in uh, Professor Ganganath Jha's commentary, he points out that the sutra does not mention all the functions of the mind are to be inhibited. Just that the functions of the mind are to be inhibited. Why so? For this, he says, uh, Maharishi Vyasa explains the components of the mind. Truth, inertia and energy. And this I find is one of the simplest explanations of the gunas. Truth, energy in, uh, and inertia. This is the simplest way to understand these three. Sattva, Rajas, Tamas. We remain either in knowledge, sattva, or we get mixed up in the sense objects, tamas, or we crave power, rajas. When we are under the influence of rajas and tamas, we have the distracted state of mind. When we are under the influence of tamas alone, we have attachment, delusion, helplessness. Uh, Professor Jha uses the word sin here, which I'm not sure is the correct translation, since uh, the traditional texts don't really have a concept of sin. Um, it's more of a sort of Western overview on uh, Indian text. However, he's not provided the original term here, so I'm just going to let that pass. Basically, the tamas state of mind is mired in lust and wanting and acquires the dull and fickle states of mind. These are what he described in Sutra 1. Ashipita, Mudha and Vikshipita. 
you can you know as i said go back to sutra 1 to listen to those categories again uh, and you'll see how cleverly the knowledge builds on the previous one like an interlocking loop and you'll notice the structure with all the great masters including the buddha uh, the teaching builds such that if you miss one nugget of information you have to go back and you know correct the previous step but it's a very canny way of teaching because the student knows exactly until where he knows what he knows and so it's very easy to go back and correct your knowledge um so you know in the uh, the dissemination of knowledge is designed in such a way that if you haven't got a certain step right the next step won't make sense to you so do go back if you need to <clears throat> so in the distracted state of mind okay in the distracted state of mind whatever communion or yoga you attain is not yoga because the yoga is subjugated to the distraction when the mind shakes off the tamas it has the drive towards virtue okay so let's say you shake off that distracted state of mind you still have the drive you need to say okay i need to get up and go and do my yoga or seek my knowledge or work towards my liberation and that is still ego invested in being virtuous and it has the taint of rajas because you need the drive so uh you know um when when the rajas is excessive i would think of this kind of like the mind state of ravana who though he was a great yogi was imbalanced by the powerful rajas mind when even the slightest bit of rajas is thrown off the sattva mind consisting of pure knowledge turns towards true yoga consciousness by itself is unchanging vedha vyasa points out that this is different from discriminative knowledge which may also be sattvic but is still focused on the discerning faculty of the mind uh, don't uh, i understand these are highly technical uh, phrases the discerning mind the discriminative mind don't let it throw you off uh, as you read through the six bhashas they each as each master explains it it will become clearer and clearer so just hang in there okay so the discriminative knowledge okay is still using the discerning faculty of the mind this is still in the state of sampragnata or concrete knowledge what is he saying he is saying that a mind that uses the mind to know the mind is still in the concrete state okay so for instance when you sit down for meditation and you say now i will concentrate the will and the concentrate are also faculties of the mind so let's say you're coming to concentration by chanting ram 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 or whatever it is you chant okay you're still using the mind to know the mind and therefore you are still within the known ambit of the mind okay only when it shuts this also out and hence all its functions inhibiting discerning also it is in a state of seedless communion that is without potential for rebirth and thus reaches a sampragnata or the abstract communion both together a sampragnata and sampragnata concrete and abstract form the state of the inhibited mind professor jha explains that if all functions are inhibited in the sutra then conscious communion would be excluded however the definition 
of all functions are also included as it activates the mind still only when this is surpassed we reach the abstract so i'll summarize this for you i know this was a little complicated generally vidyasa direct is okay <clears throat> so to summarize rajas and tamas in equal measure is distracted mind or vikshipita tamas alone is fickle and dull mind kshipita and mudha satva with a tinge of rajas is ekagra mind because you still need the drive to move yourself towards liberation satva mind that is inhibited is nirudha nirudha mind is still sampragnata when you use the mind to conquer the mind you are still in the state of the concrete only when all functions of the mind are inhibited it reaches asampragnata or abstract mind that is when you have crossed the gunas okay that is the commentary by uh maharshi vedavyasa direct as interpreted by professor gaganath jha now let's go to swami satyananda and i quite um i'm i'm sorry to be developing a clear favorite but uh, i find swami satyananda's explanations just systematic simple and very beautiful consciousness vritti patterns nirodha blocking simply put to block the patterns of consciousness is yoga and he says don't don't take this as a definition as such of yoga because you cannot define yoga until you have studied all 195 sutras so don't get into is this the definition of yoga so he defines the terms he breaks down the terms for us instead chitta comes from chit to see be conscious of be aware chitta becomes the individual consciousness which includes the subconscious and the unconscious mind all three together form chitta he deconstructs these in another way objective consciousness which is what we gain through the senses subjective consciousness astral plane unconsciousness or the dormant personality dormant self he recommends that you read the mandukya upanishad for details on the four dimensions of consciousness um chitta includes these three which i have just described objective subjective and unconscious plus the atman becomes the fourth so these together the chitta plus atman becomes the four dimensions of consciousness so he gives you a formula he says jivatman minus chitta is atman okay so there is a purusha form minus chitta is atman prakriti if you think of chitta as only mind okay blocking or inhibition seems like suppression but if you understand that chitta is whole consciousness all of awareness all three stages then nirodha cannot be suppressing because that would mean lacking awareness hence it is important to understand what it is we block we block the habitual patterns of chitta and not awareness itself he points out for instance in a state of meditation you will notice that the patterns of consciousness falls away okay what this sutra is telling you that it is fundamentally possible to achieve a different state of mind how 
by inhibiting the habitual state of mind. When the flow of vrittis change, let's say you are asleep, you enter a different mind state. So it is in manipulating these vrittis that altered states occur. There is a definite process to it. And if you follow the process, you can achieve an altered state of mind. What is this process? It is separate from body, mind, senses, prana and it it lies in awareness. It is awareness that alters from state to state. Okay, so your dream state or your supraconscious state, your body, mind, senses, prana may be inactive but your awareness is travelling. And a conscious transition of awareness is what confers us that alteration. Consciousness exists in the body. It cannot exist without the body. And yet it has to be blocked. Not ordinary thought, which is negligible. So basically what he says is don't don't worry about this running train of the mind. Okay, Ordinary thought... Um, Feelings, emotions, passions, desires, all this stuff that we keep grappling with at the mundane level, it really doesn't matter. Because there's a whole area of consciousness beyond it that is fascinating. It's beyond the body, within the body, outside the body and it is infinite. The consciousness is what travels from life to life. So, you know, in this life we tend to think our thoughts, our memories, our ideas are really the biggest thing. But you are so limited by those thoughts and ideas in this life. It is only within the frame of the known. Okay, uh, They don't affect the larger flow of consciousness. So also what we use yoga for is to raise the level of our grappling. What we are blocking <clears throat> is the pattern of chitta, which is its pattern of remanifesting. So, vritta means circle. Vritti is circular. The chitta's patterns are circular. They recur, they ripple, they turn like a wheel. Hence, the modes of the mind are chitta vritti. So, when we block, what are we blocking? We block consciousness from falling into the pattern of recurring and transcending the individual experiences in the different planes. This is the order of evolution of your consciousness, he says. Okay, He then explains the five stages of evolutions of consciousness <clears throat> and also encourage you to you know, find this chapter and read it yourself because it's just beautifully explained and it's unlikely that I'm going to do justice to it, but I will try. <clears throat> the Muda state belongs to the Muladhara Chakra. Okay, So Muda is dullness of mind where the individual consciousness is sleeping. When it awakens, when it's sleeping, that's what they refer to in Kundalini as the sleeping serpent. When it awakens and rises up to Manipura, that is the navel, it reaches Kshipita, or fickle mind. Between Manipura and Muladhara, okay, the state of mind can go back and forth. Uh, but if you have successfully stayed in Manipura, the navel chakra, then consciousness has the capacity to become relatively steady in its ascent as Vikshipita up to the Ajna Chakra. Then you start to see real progress in concentration. 
and Sahasrahara at the crown is beyond the three gunas. So all the world becomes an interplay of these three gunas. Sattva, Tamas and Rajas permeate all creation and they have an interplay which manifests through action, thought and event. When Sattva predominates, the mind is quiet. When Tamas predominates, nothing can make you active or blissful. And uh, <clears throat> Swami Satyananda says, one guna alone does not predominate, but interacts with the others in proportion. So the Tamas dominance is suppressing the other two and you know puts you in inertia and thinking becomes slow and creates this deep neurosis that becomes mudha, a dullness state of chitta. So you see how it's all interlinked. When Rajas predominates, suppressing Sattva and Tamas, the mind is scattered. And, you know, he says at this point you can be suicidal, murderous, in the state of Kshipita. Vikshipita is an oscillating mind. Sometimes steady, sometimes distracted. It's like, you know, when you sit down to meditate and you just can't get your mind to focus. When the flow of concentration that is born of Sattva is interrupted by unsteadiness, born of Rajas, one is in Vikshipita. So you may start a meditation program, yoga, fitness program, start your work, be very steady for a few days and then, you know, leave everything for a few days. But he says, so this is a fickle state of mind. But he says this is a very important stage because the gunas over here are expressing themselves freely. And this is where yoga begins. In this free expressive state, when sattva expresses itself, one-pointedness dawns. So, when you understand <clears throat> which guna is dominant in the moment, you understand how to eliminate the negative qualities that it's bringing out so that all three regain balance. You don't eliminate the gunas. You bring them back to balance with countermeasures. So, for instance, uh, if you're awake at night and you can't sleep, then you use monotony, chanting, you know, you repeat a name. This reduces your rajas. Okay? You apply a repetitive element, tamasic element, to invoke sleep. So, in this way, whatever, you know, a guna is dominant, when you start observing yourself and you start understanding which guna is predominating, you can apply the countermeasure and therefore you keep bringing yourself back to balance. So yoga, he says, begins at Vikshipita when the, when the gunas start manifesting in different forms uh, through you freely. In Ekagra, once you reach Ekagra, Rajas and Tamas are absent, only Sattva remains. When, when you surpass that and you arrive at Nirudha, neither Tamas, Rajas nor Sattva remain and you achieve three Trigunatita, which is beyond the three gunas. This is equivalent to the awakening of the Kundalini energy. <coughs> now we'll move to Swami Vivekananda. So, you know, Swami Vivekananda really enjoys Sutra too. He really gets under the skin of it. Okay, so uh, he says this is a very important Sutra. And he says, what is Chitta, what is Vritti? Interestingly, he uses it, uh, he explains it in the same sort of terms that the Buddha used. So, uh, I and I consciousness, except he says that 
there is the instrument and there is the organ and the mind attachment what do, what do they mean by this buddha buddha and swami vivekananda so when you see something you see through the organ of the the instrument of the eye the occipital center in your brain is the instrument is the mind attachment okay but what is seen it is not the eye that is seen it is eye consciousness so that is what swami vivekananda explains as instrument organ and mind attachment okay so the organ would be the eye the instrument is the eye consciousness and then you have the mind attachment the mind takes it further to the buddhi the intellect which reacts activating the ego center the ahankara this action i see okay this action reaction is presented to the real soul the purusha okay um and the organs the indriyas together with the mind manas determination buddhi and ego ahankara become a group called the antakarana these together are the processes of the chitta the whirlpool of the mind he says is the vritti think of thought as a gravitational force or repulsion of the spool when the force is propelled by chitta its output is thought okay just and in case this has got a little dense i'll explain it to you say you're looking at something your eye consciousness is seen through the organ and creates a mind attachment the mind takes it to the buddhi which reacts activating the sense of ego i see the action reaction is presented to the real soul the purusha okay and the organs together with the mind the sense organs along with the manas buddhi ego become a group called antakarana and these form the chitta the chitta has a sort of is the whirlpool of the mind is the vritti and the vritti is creating the sort of force its output is thought and motion so as this whirlpool of the mind is churning that force that is created drives your motion and in the subtler form it drives thought where does this force come from this force comes from food from here it gets the power of motion and the subtler forces become thought hence he says the mind is not intelligent on its own it only appears to be because of the purusha behind it the real self you are the sentient being the mind is the instrument channeling you towards the external world the universe thus becomes a reaction of the mind okay just as the pearl comes into being out of the irritation of the oyster with a grain of sand the mind is throwing an amel over it okay um and i do suspect he's channeling william blake here so what he says is as ordinary men we don't get this because every time we try to throw out try to sort of analyze what is this grain of sand the mind is throwing out more enamel and covering up the sand and presenting it to us as a pearl 
and this is the patterning in the vrittis you see because we cannot use the mind to know the mind beyond a point because the mind is the creator of the illusion the real man is behind the mind the mind is the instrument and his intelligence percolates through it so when the mind is calm we see we see behind it just like you know when the lake is calm and free of ripples we see the bottom the ripples being vritti is the lake being chitta and the bottom being the true self he describes the three states of mind as tamas darkness okay uh, which is the state of brutes and idiots his words not mine uh, who harm others rajas whose chief motives are to enjoy power and rule over others and the clear lake attains sattva serenity but he points out serenity is not inactive it is intensely active it is the greatest manifestation of the power to be calm and it is harder to be calm than to be active so do not mistake sattva for dullness it is restraint it is not dullness activity he says is the manifestation of lower strength calmness of superior strength chitta keeps trying to return to its primal state but the organs keep drawing it out and this first step of yoga is to get it on the journey and this is only possible in the human form though chitta is in all animals it is only when it has the sort of interpreter the catalyst of the intellect okay that uh, you know uh, that we can use the chitta okay it manifests in scattering darkening awakening concentrating scattering is activity manifests as pleasure and pain dullness is darkness which injures others the demonical form and ekagra is what brings us to samadhi this is swami vivekan now let's uh, get into bks ayengar's explanation he is also extremely systematic he gives you the breakdown of the words first and he explains it very differently so for him yoga as union union of what from the outermost muscle and bone to the innermost self right the consciousness with the three stages of the mind manas buddhi and ahankara chitta being the vehicle of observation attention aims and reason and chitta has three functions he says cognition volition and motion and vritti being the state of mind fluctuations behavior the state of being nirodaha being obstruction so yoga he says is defined as the restraint of fluctuations in the consciousness when we study the behavior of consciousness we see it has three functions cognition volition motion yoga helps us quieten their movements to a state of silence which becomes the seat of consciousness and yoga is the discipline by which we culture and mature the mind so chitta is the vehicle which takes the mind manas to the atman soul yoga ceases the vibrations in its seat so that this journey may happen he describes chitta as the subtlest form of cosmic intelligence mahat which is the source of prakriti the physical world itself as opposed to the soul which is its offshoot 
Listen to what he says. He says, Chitta is the progenitor of the world of nature itself. The soul is only an offshoot of it. And in the Sankhya system, Purusha and Prakriti mingling creates the world, the source of all action, volition and silence. Basically, every phenomenon that has reached a state of complete evolution is going to have a subtle side. So thus, buddhi or discrimination is the gross counterpart of the subtle mahat. Chitta is the gross form of chit. For In order for liberation to happen, the highest form of consciousness must work with the highest form of intellect. And these are linked by the antakarna, the mind stuff, ego, intelligence, manobuddhi, ahankara. So this antakarna is cloudy due to entanglement with worldly engagement. And what does a sadhaka do on the path of yoga is aim to purify it. Consciousness is what links the manifest to the unmanifest, the evolved to the unevolved. And it is also closest to the soul. So, how does this happen? The buddhi presents perfect action and experience and the mind, the manas, must use the jnanendriyas, the five senses of perception, that is sight, sound, smell, all of that. Um, the karmendriyas, which are a product of the elements of nature with their five senses. And the five sheets or koshas, are also within the five elements of nature. Okay, So, what BKS Iyengar does is he's basically pointing out to you, you have five senses of perception, you have five sense organs, you have five sheets, the koshas, you have five elements of nature. And these are each and all manifestations of the chitta which use each other to cognize the world and to also deconstruct the world. So the same instrument that is making manifest the world to you is the same instrument that is demanifesting it to you. Yoga thus integrates the person between the states of the external to the internal, from intelligence of skin to intelligence of self, and thus Prakriti and Purusha become merged. So his explanation is absolutely profound and beautiful. What he's basically saying is there is a complete state of harmony between the external world and the internal world. And this realization is the merging of Prakriti and Purusha. Yoga, he says, leads to a sattvic state. But to restrain, you know, to force yourself to have this imposition of will to reach there requires a subtle element of rajas. So, when you flow from dharana to dhyana, that is from concentration to meditation, the sadhaka is basically uniting the individual to the universal. And the object of meditation goes from individual self to the universal self. When the mind is focused on objects, it fluctuates. When the mind is focused on the individual self, it becomes steady. So when the discrimination faculty clearly distinguishes individual self from objects, the source of fluctuation ceases. Why is that uh, discrimination not always possible? Because of this elemental integration, you see. 
um, yoga becomes the means of restraining the fluctuations by detaching the mind from the sense objects and locating it back to the self, the object of dharma, of dharana. Yoga, therefore, becomes a means and an end. B.K.S. Sangha's explanation is beautiful because it's completely integrated with our understanding of the world and uh, the way the mind draws out the world from the body, from the perception, from the senses, from the indriyas, from the koshas, as well as subsumes it all back into it. So to him, yoga is this perfect state of harmony between all the elemental forms of prakriti and purusha, manifest, unmanifest, evolved and unevolved. Yoga is thus both a means and an end, he said. Now we move to the explanation of Osho. Osho uses uh, the most Buddhist terms in all the bhashas. He says, yoga is the cessation of the mind. And uh, cessation is a word that, you know, comes from the Buddha's um, Four Noble Truths. And this is the best definition you have, he says, because it is the most scientific. The mind covers everything, ego, desires, hopes, philosophies, religion, scriptures, all that you can think of, all that lends itself to being noble is mind. Hence, cessation of mind is the cessation of the known. It is jumping into the unknown and the unknowable. What is mind? We think of it as something substantial. Patanjali, Osho says, doesn't agree. Science also doesn't agree. Mind is a function, an entity. It is not a thing. The example he gives is very simple. He says, you walk. I see you are walking. But when you sit down, where does your walking go? So also the mind is minding. It is thinking. And uh, he tells a great story. The great sage Bodhidharma went to China. The emperor is waiting for him. And he says, tell me how to put my mind at ease. So Bodhidharma says, do nothing. First, bring your mind to me. Come at four o'clock in the morning. Tell no one, bring your mind with you. The emperor thinks, you know, what's wrong with this guy? Is he mad? Bring my mind with me, don't forget. Uh, and he couldn't sleep, but he goes at 4 a.m. And Bodhidharma asks, where is your mind? Have you brought it with you or not? And the emperor says, listen, don't talk nonsense. When I'm here, my mind is here. It's not something I can forget somewhere. So Bodhidharma says, okay, so we have determined the mind is within you. And the emperor says, okay, the mind is within me. So Bodhidharma says, okay, quickly locate it and let me know where it is so I can set it at peace. Give it to me. The emperor closes his eyes and then he soon, you know, realizes the absurdity of the quest. He says, if it's not something, if the mind is not something, nothing can be done about it. If it's an activity, don't do the activity. If it's like walking, then don't walk. So he opens his eyes and he tells Bodhidharma, there is no mind to be found. And Bodhidharma says, Okay, then I have put it at peace. Looking for mind, Osho says, is anti-mind. Because a look is not thinking. To look intensely when you, when you go into this self-observation mode, 
you utilize your whole energy you take it away from motion and thought and put it into thinking so yoga being the cessation of the mind requires this or or is the process of this looking if your mind is thinking when you are doing asanas you are not in yoga so you can do yoga for many lives when the mind is there you are there when the activity of the mind has ceased like clouds disappearing from the sky there is cessation the word zen he explains comes from the word dhyana which becomes jhan as in jhanas those of you who uh, jhanas are basically the states of meditation in china it becomes chan and in japan zen and the root of it is the same dhyana which means no mind so the whole training is how to stop minding simply be without thinking when patanjali says cessation your mind cannot be chanting ram 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 because it is still using its faculty of thought it's still using the chitta so how do we stop patanjali says simply look let the mind do what it has to do it flows because of the past momentum just don't go along with it yoga is the cessation of the mind then the witness is established in itself and this is what is explained in sutra 3 now we'll be uh, reading babra stola miller highly erudite extremely contextual in how she explains and she makes interesting comparisons babra stola miller makes a comparison between the eightfold path of buddha the bhagavad gita of which she is an excellent scholar I hope you've read her poetic uh, you know translation of the gita and the yoga sutras for their common store of knowledge two striking examples of this commonality she says are the use of two terms nirodha and chitta vritti nirodha which she translates as cessations of the turnings of thought as the buddha explained it further she adds the idea of dukkha all is suffering for the wise man uh, sutra 2.15 which we'll look into a bit later at the time buddhism was developing uh yoga was you know manifesting in texts such as the mahabharata uh, in which the most powerful practitioner of it is arjuna okay and in more than one episode she points out arjuna performs feats of yogic austerity including in the dialogue on the battlefield the battlefield setting she says is not just a physical place but a state of mind and as arjuna loses his nerve at the thought of you know having to kill his family uh, go to war with against elders krishna is teaching him to discipline thought and emotion to perform the necessary action free from blood lust and pain and the path to this is through psychological and physical discipline concentration meditation and contemplative awareness okay essentially yoga and she points out one crucial distinction between the yoga of lord krishna and the yoga that patanjali teaches in the gita krishna teaches liberation as the aim of yoga in order to enable one to wage war in life okay 
Patanjali teaches it as a complete cessation of worldly concerns. So, yoga in the Gita has friendship, devotion, action as transformational forces. But in Patanjali's exposition on yoga, there is a suspension of mental and physical action is necessary. Ishvara in um, Patanjali is not a creator god. He is not a manifestation of life and death. He is rather an archetypal yogi, a sort of object of concentration. And in Patanjali, um, there is no manifestation like Krishna, you know, as the form of Mahavishnu. And this is because the Sankhya text, Sankhya Karika, is a complement and parallel structure to the Yoga Sutras. And yoga as a code of practical discipline is amplified by the Sankhya ideal of cosmic evolution, the psychological mirroring in the microcosm, basically the Purusha and the Prakriti. The basis of spiritual liberation in yoga is a profound experience of the evolutionary process. So, like a point in Euclidean geometry, she says, spirit has no material identity except in relation to the phenomenal world. It is through ignorance, according to Patanjali, that spirit is connected to the world. Because of, of this, this ignorance, Purusha is manifested as Prakriti. Okay? Alone it is pure consciousness. All material nature consists of, therefore, the three gunas, the aspects of energy in potential form and actualized in innumerable combinations in the material world. Sattva is lucidity, passion is rajas, tamas is inertia, which weighs down the other two. And among the 24 evolutes of Sankhya theory, Patanjali focuses on those that must be broken down to open the gross and subtle fetters of thought. Since what binds the spirit to the material world, okay, since what binds the spirit to the material world, is made of the same material. What binds Purusha to Prakriti is consciousness, Chitta. And the material world is made of Chitra. So how do you clear the fog with the fog? Right? So we are bound by what we are escaping essentially. Chitta is a combination of three psychomental evolutes. Together with the five sense organs, Chitta functions through individual cognition and emotion. Unlike Manas, the mind, the organ of thought, which it is often misidentified as. So, what she is basically saying here is that Chitta Vritti comprises all states of consciousness. Okay? And um, thought in the material world is ceaselessly in motion. And the goal of yoga is to still this motion and therefore by doing so to liberate the subject from the tyranny of uncontrollable thought. However, since the mind is also material in nature, tranquility itself is not enough to ensure ultimate freedom. Why? Because it cannot discriminate between what is essential and what is adventitious. So tranquility that you're creating through yoga, through a state of meditation, or through the things you do to become tranquil, like taking a walk in nature, whatever it is. Um, the tranquility is also a function of the mind. And therefore it cannot last. 
the body and mind according to patanjali are the physical and mental dimensions of the same material nature prakriti interior nature is much more difficult to control than external so when you control the inner the external aspects become easier to control and that's why the yogi gains extraordinary powers because he's controlling the inner and he's controlling the outer through the inner so purusha becomes bound to prakriti spirit to material nature through chitta and the accumulation of subliminal memory samskara vasna ashaya the relation between chitta vritti and memory she says is essential to patanjali's epistemology when thought passes from one state to another it is preserved in memory and becomes a storehouse of thoughts if you study buddhism you will recognize this as uh, sankharas uh, which are stored in the alaya or the storehouse of the mind consciousness and then she goes on a beautiful exposition on the connection between thought and memory in sanskrit literature um which i'm not going to get into but i encourage you to read it um but for our purpose she says patanjali aggregates the expression of chitta through karma and this accounts for subconscious predisposition predispositions that condition an individual through many lives okay so when the mind acts through karma it creates action in the world okay and this creates conditions for us through many lives and therefore thought and action become a cyclical causality action creates memory traces which fuel mental processes it is stored in memory and as therefore it endures many births and this this storehouse is only obliterated when the chain of causal relations is broken even so memory reason intuition so there is this the cyclical causality of thought action in the world that creates memory that goes into the storehouse and you need to obliterate that through yoga but even so even if you obliterate it or if, even if you don't memory reason intuition have no relevance to spiritual liberation why because if you remember what swami satyananda said and also to some extent what uh, pk sanga said uh these are limited to this framework to the known framework of this life you need to aim higher because the thing that's running through all the lives is higher than chitta so liberation is possible only when the subconscious subliminal impressions are consumed and all turning seeds if you remember what professor gangadhar chah said why why does it not use the word all all turning seeds liberation is not the cessation of the world of sensory input provocations actions thought memory but detachment from them so as you go through this world you're going to use your emotion you're going to use thought you're going to use memory you're going to act you're going to perform karmas that is not what needs to cease you don't need to go and sit in the corner like a you know immobile statue that does not make you liberated detachment from all of that and the cessation of chitta which runs through many lifetimes is what moves you towards liberation so this is a conclusion of uh, the second sutra योगश्चित्तवृत्तिरोधः 
and uh, i hope it helps you understand the words of these masters what is it that actually has to cease thank you for listening and i hope you'll join us next week for sutra number 3 also request to please like share subscribe as uh, it helps the um, information and the knowledge reach many people who may need it thank you